Welcome to the September 2018 issue of the RehabCast, the podcast of the Archives of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. I'm your host, Dr. Ford Vox. Now, in the last issue, we'd already been discussing some of the articles from the September 2018 edition, focusing on the DOC guidelines, the new disorders of consciousness guidelines that are co-published in the journal Neurology. Now, today's featured interview includes another related article on the assessment of pain in this population, and I hope you'll tune into that shortly. First, a couple of news updates. The University of Louisville's Spinal Cord Injury Research Program is out with a couple of fascinating new papers on epidural stimulation. The first, published in JAMA Neurology, demonstrates improvements in blood pressure and heart rate regulation in a study with four chronic cervical motor incomplete SCI subjects. These people were all implanted with a Restore Advanced Medtronic Epidural Stimulator over L1 to S1. Training sessions alleviated orthostatic hypotension in all four when the stimulation protocol was active and the cardiovascular response remained improved without stimulation following the training sessions. Meanwhile, in another study just published, also from the University of Louisville, is generating even more headlines. This one is published in the New England Journal of Medicine. It also reports on four patients, and I don't know if these are the same four that were also in that JAMA Neurology Research Letter, but it combines epidural stimulation and locomotor training in patients who are at least 2.5 years post-injury all unable to voluntarily move their legs at the start of the study. No standing, certainly no walking. Now, eight to nine weeks prior to the implantation of an epidural stimulator, they started daily locomotor training, that is the manual facilitation of stepping on a treadmill, and they did that five days per week for two hours each day. Now, although there were no changes to the locomotor abilities prior to the implant, Following the epidural stimulation, participants were able to step when the stimulator was on and the individual intended to walk. Participants three and four in this study were able to achieve walking over ground in addition to on a treadmill with assistive devices like a walker and horizontal poles for balance while the stimulator was on. Here are researchers Susan Harkema and Claudia Angela commenting on their work along with two of the study's subjects in a video news release from the University of Louisville. What this means is that the spinal circuitry has a capacity to relearn how to walk in certain conditions. The spinal cord is very receptive to sensory cues, so if it gets a little bit, then the spinal cord will give a little bit more. Being able to shut one side of my brain off to connect with one leg and have the other side of my brain on to connect with the other leg, it took, it took a long time, it took months to be able to figure out how to put everything into one little basket. Kelly wasn't the first UofL patient to make the stunning breakthrough of taking steps on their own. That distinction belongs to Jeff Marquis. He crashed while riding his mountain bike, suffering a spinal cord injury more severe than Kelly's. He, too, is grateful to have found the researchers at UofL. I was the, the first to get bilateral steps, I think is how, they've, how we've uh, termed that. Um, uh, when it first happened, it was kind of a surprise. Um, I was on the treadmill, and just one day I was like, hey, can you? I was just I was getting one leg pretty consistently, and uh, consistently enough that uh, I asked the person that was on my other leg to, to come off and let me give it a try. But the second or third step, I got one, and then they had to come back on, and eventually I, I uh, 
kind of progressed from there. The breakthroughs are the result of years of research at UofL. Harkema cautions that, right now, only a few patients like Jeff and Kelly have gotten to the point of being able to take steps, but it gives hope to paraplegics and quadriplegics that they might one day walk again. I think the important aspect of it is that recovery is possible, the ability to stand without physical assistance and walk over ground without physical assistance, um, it, it, it is a possibility now. Really impressive work and I'm glad to see it published in such top journals as the New England Journal and JAMA Neurology. Next up, the Chicago Tribune has an excellent feature about University of Michigan medical student Chris Connolly. He incurred a cervical level spinal cord injury while playing water polo in high school. The article is headlined, Chris Connolly is a brilliant medical student. He's also a quadriplegic and the person who may change the way we think about doctors. The article details Connolly's rehab at the Shirley Ryan Ability Lab, followed by Kennedy Krieger and is going on to Stanford for undergraduate and now has daily life in med school. The Tribune also spoke with disabilities researcher Dr. Lisa Meeks, who's based at the University of Michigan, and focuses her work on improving access to medical education for people with disabilities. About 2.7% of U.S. med students have disclosed some sort of disability versus 11% for other fields. A lot of med schools still have in place a list of physical standards that aren't really reflective of what people need to do to be able to be good doctors in quite a variety of fields. The Tribune article does an excellent job of laying out those issues and the improvements underway in medical education in places like Michigan. Joining us now on the Rehab Cast is Dr. Camille Chattel. She's postdoctoral research fellow at the Giga Consciousness Program at the University of Liège. She's also affiliated with the uh, Neuroimaging Coma and Consciousness Lab uh, at Harvard. Uh, Dr. Chattel, thanks for joining us today on the Rehab Cast. Thank you. Now, uh, much of your work uh, centers on the disorders of consciousness population, which is the focus of the September issue of the Archives of Physical Medicine and uh, Rehabilitation, and most prominently publishes uh, new guidelines, some of which are actually highly relevant to the paper of yours that, that we're discussing today surrounding the assessment uh, of pain. Um, what's uh, your personal interest in the DOC population? Why, what led you into uh, uh, researching this particular area uh, of brain injury? So basically, I've always been quite interested in, in pain in general, like pain processing, subjective experience of pain. And it was somehow like by chance that I've met with uh, Stephen Race uh, several years ago when I started my master thesis. And basically, we discussed about these patients with disorders of consciousness who are non-communicative and all these you know, challenges around the, that population. And this is when I start, started working with uh, Caroline Schnickers on the nociception mm -hmm. coma scale, which basically led to a lot of different collaborator, co collaborations and uh, developments for that scale. Yes, and the story seems, at least your first publication goes back to uh, 2010 uh, in the prominent journal Pain. Uh, and I see your second author on, the, on that paper uh, with Dr. Schnakers. And uh, at that point, uh, introducing the scale, some of the components was slightly different. It, it now is the uh, nociception coma scale 
uh, revised, uh, which seems to be the style nowadays to, to add a little bit of revision as the evidence uh, demands. But um, going back to that, that initial paper and the introduction of that, um, uh, tell us about the, the initial development of the scale, since you were no doubt involved uh, in that. How did you all settle on those initial domains? And then we can talk about how it was revised subsequently. Um, so basically, we, like a, about 10 years ago, we found out that there, there was a, actually no scales for assessing pain in disorders of consciousness. And um, so we looked at all the literature on pain in non-communicative patients, such, such as uh, demented patients and newborns. And um, using our knowledge of these patients, specific population brain-injured patients, we basically uh, selected some items and added additional items that were uh, to us that seemed relevant for assessing nociception and pain. Um, mm -hmm. So maybe there's one key uh, thing here because uh, because the, the um, the, the use of nociception, nociception comma scale and not pain, is uh, specific to this population because, so you know, the nociception is the neural process of encoding a, a stimuli, so it's pretty reflexive, whereas pain is way more subjective. So it's really the, the, the subjective experience that is associated with this um, uh, nociception. And so, because with these patients with disorders of consciousness are unable to talk about their own feelings and provide subjective reports, we cannot really say whether they are processing nociception or really pain per se. So this is also why we decided to use the term nociception and not pain scale. Uh, certainly the story of pain assessment and coma, I suppose uh, in DOC in general, as compared to everything else, it's kind of this... Uh, uh, left out population, and indeed, uh, we have for a long time been borrowing from, you know, kind of other scales, like this FLAC scale, uh, FLACC is, is fairly popular, and um, a variety of programs use that, but uh, this original paper back in 2010, you guys are pointing out, hey guys, that that scale was actually uh, validated in uh, newborns, uh, exactly. <laughs> in a rather different <laughs> population than DOC, and a lot of these scales, you know, whether dementia populations or so forth, or just uh, general medical patients on ventilators. Uh, you know, there's a lot of unique things about the DOC population that we've got to take into account. Exactly. And so at, at the very first steps, we actually included different, so, so the visual subscale, so as you said, it's been revised, um, and, but also the respiration, because we thought it would be a relevant indicator, but actually we found that, and it's not part of the initial paper, because we found out that uh, it's actually very hard in uh, chronic patients to assess uh, the breathing without any monitoring. And so we, we thought it was too subjective and, and not standardized enough to be used as a, a scale for nociception for this population. Yes, and uh, yeah, certainly from the clinical perspective with uh, folks having uh, kind of uh, uh, autonomic hyperactivity and so forth that like appears to be separate from any nociception sometimes uh, per se and can be quite severe. It's going to be really messy to try to distinguish some of those types of factors, the cardiovascular and respiratory rate and so forth and some patients so so-called actively quote-unquote storming or something. Mm-hmm, exactly. Um, now, uh, so, so in that uh, original scale and validation study, um, uh, at that point, you did have a, a visual uh, responsiveness in there going from uh, none up to startle, eye movements, uh, fixation. And in su su a subsequent uh, paper, uh, however, in 2012, that's when you decided that uh, 
your group would revise um, in order to uh, to delete that section. Tell us about what you found in, in terms of that that population as to why you that study why you decided to get rid of the uh, visual scale. So basically, in that study, we really wanted to look at the sensitivity of the scale to uh, noxious stimulation, and so we used three different conditions: so a baseline, which is a rest period without any stimulation, and then two different conditions: one being non-noxious, so it was a tap on the shoulder on left and right shoulders, and then a pressure in the nail bed, which was the, the nociceptive uh, stimulation. And we compared the, noc the non-noxious and the noxious stimulation. Uh, and more specifically, the, 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 DNCSR, the DNCS scores to these two conditions, and we found out that the, the, there were no differences in the scores for the visual subscale, suggesting that it is, it is probably more related to a response to a stimulation, but not specific to nociception, um, really. And in terms of your administration of uh, pain in these scales, and to, and to kind of give our audience a little more of a clue of what we're talking about, the uh, the scale involves a motor response, uh, verbal response, and importantly, facial expression, which comes into play in this most recent paper in terms of comparing and contrasting it with the uh, CRSR, the motor response uh, going from uh, none or flaccid up to localization uh, to painful stimulation, uh, verbal from uh, none to any, any verbalization, ideally intelligible, and facial from none up to uh, uh, crying. Um, so, uh, in this, in the paper in uh, 2012, in order to elicit uh, pain, um, you were uh, utilizing a particular uh, device um, uh, to to cause uh, pressure to to nail beds. That it appears that you're not using um, in the new paper. Could you uh, tell us about why you all made that change? So for the, the first study, we wanted to have something that's very um, standardized, and we also wanted to look at the, the pressure that we administered uh, to the patient and see if it differed from uh, controls. And, um, and here, actually, uh, it was a multicentric study involving uh, many more centers, so from Norway, from Germany, from uh, the US and, and Belgium. And, um, and here, we really wanted to compare uh, the level of consciousness is assessed by the CRSR, so the coma recovery scale revised, and the nociception coma scale revised. And uh, so because the coma recovery scale revised also assess a response to a noxious stimulation, we thought it would be best to only apply uh, the stimulation once for the patient uh, and score it with both scales. So it was, it was more like uh, to, to follow the guidelines of the, the, the Komarikovry scale revised and to, to uh, compare, to do a fair comparison between, between the two scales. To be clear, if you were to do the nociception coma scale revised on its own, uh, you would be more precise um, and, and utilize the, uh, the four style uh, Newton meter in order to administer pain? I think it depends on the question, right? So if the question is whether there's an increase in behavioral responsiveness to an increased pressure, then yes, definitely, because you need something standardized. But if it is more um, for clinical reason, like what we are starting to do now, like more clinical um, studies where we look at the, the, the behavioral responsiveness to mobilization, for example, physiotherapy for spastic patients, there um, we wouldn't... I mean, we would apply a pressure, but that's based, of the, the, based on the Comarico Risky Revised and compare it to 
the responses at the bedside during the, the nursing or the, the potentially painful cares. So this is pretty, I mean, it depends on the question, I guess. I see. Okay. Well, uh, so getting back to uh, to the current study, again, published in the September issue, um, you are kind of comparing and contrasting the scores uh, that you're getting uh, with the uh, NCSR, with the uh, CRSR, um, and uh, and seeing ideally you hypothesize that your your new scale might be more sensitive, but certainly you did want to see the the correlation uh, between the two. Uh, to start out with, kind of your uh, your inclusion criteria. One question I had about that is, uh, um, so you're you're looking at patients who are uh, greater than or equal to 16 years old, a documented history of acquired brain injury, uh, that they're either uh, in VS or MCS, uh, all fairly standard. You do specify that you want a patients who are on no sedating or centrally acting drugs. Uh, given the example of a uh, benzodiazepine. Um, or their long-acting sedating drugs administered within the 48 hours uh, before the assessment certainly makes sense. I can see some technical difficulty with that, given the you know potentially long list of, of drugs that uh, that could qualify as somehow centrally acting in terms of uh, of sedating. Uh, do you find much much difficulty in getting people off of uh, those those drugs because and you know how and how extensive is that list? Well. Um Actually, it was it was pretty okay. I mean, it, it took uh, some time to to include all the patients that we had, but uh, but altogether, basically, we documented, and then uh, at first, we of course, like we defined which which centrally acting drugs would be um, would be like used as exclusion, um, but then. Uh, I mean, I think we were not so conservative that we lost a lot of patients. Uh, note to listeners, in subsequent communications, we did clarify that there actually were some patients on Keppra, uh, actually slightly less than 25% of the pool were on this particular drug. Returning now to the interview. In terms of, um, you know, actually uh, administering the scale, could you uh, walk us through that, what that looks like? What type of position does the patient need to be in? What type of state? I think you mentioned that uh, you certainly want the patient as alert as possible. You're not going to do it unless their, their eyes are open and so forth. So here, usually, we try to get the patient as aroused as possible, unless obviously. Their eyes are open and so yeah. Forth. Um, and then uh, in Ideally, he would be in a seated position if you uh, if you really want to assess, like uh, in response to a uh, pressure, and also the, the the limbs and especially the upper limbs needs to be um, not too close but not too further away as well, because we know that they have the, a, a, a lot of these patients have motor impairment, and so if you're looking for localization to noxious stimulation, for example, but there are the two limbs uh, upper limbs are very further away apart it's going to be very hard for the patient to localize. So you don't want them to be very close and have like, because then it would be, you know, like a, it could be like just a movement that looks like a localization, but you don't want them to be too further apart as well. Um, and uh, I mean, for the, I, I think it's, it's, um, it's mainly, uh, again, depending on the context, whether you look at the, the response to the pressure in the nail, on, the, on the nail bed, or if you're looking at the clinical assessment during CARES. Uh, but but I think one is one thing that is key is really to look at a patient at rest, so without any stimulation before looking for response to stimulation. Uh, get an idea of that of that baseline before you elicit exactly, any and whether there's already some uh, like a severe spasticity and and you know all the, the the things that can help you interpret the results. And then. Uh 
in terms of comparing uh, the two, again, the, uh, the CRSR is obviously meant as a general assessment of level of consciousness and DOC in particular, and you're taking your judgment of whether your patient is VS or MCS out of that, and then subsequently, you know, comparing to this to the scale. So some some difficulty uh, there, or I think circularity, is, as you mentioned, in terms of comparing the two, and embedded within them, uh, there are motor uh, and oral motor uh, elements in both, but facial expression is not contained in the uh, CRSR. However, uh, uh, in terms of what, what's your impression after having done this study of the importance of uh, the facial expression? Well, I think this is definitely something that we are working on uh, now because I think facial expression is something that's really key in this population, especially because of, you know, motor impairment and uh, uh, and also, you know, all these patients who, who have a tracheostomy that can also um, influence the scores. Um, and I, so I think we really need to go further and better characterize these facial expression. You know, like when we talk about grimacing and cries, it is, and especially grimacing, it's pretty subjective. And so I think there's way more work that can be done to better characterize this grimacing and what kind of grimacing is it. We know that it's more uh, frequently observed in response to nociception. And it's more often observed in patients who are minimally responsive at the bedside as compared with non-responsive patients. Um, but, uh, but now, yeah, so there's definitely more work to be done. And I think there is, there is a, a very important information there that, uh, that, that is really one of the, the key uh, items of the nociception Komaski revised. Uh, in terms of, uh, yeah, you mentioned grimacing is, is a little bit of a challenge to assess. I guess theoretically crying could be as, as well in turn, I mean, you know, tear production, you know, exactly how much kind of welling of fluid in the, uh, in the eyes or, you know, is one tear enough or uh, that type of thing. Do, do, you, do you feel like you had subjective difficulty in assessing what is a, a true crying spell? I think grimacing is harder than crying. Crying, we really, uh, basically, I mean, this is the way we defined it. We define it as um, when presence of tears. So it can be one, two, three, um, okay. more, you know. So this is basically, but if there's no tears and you feel like the patient is somehow crying, you know, like with the facial expression of crying, it's not sufficient. To, you know, so th this is still tricky because we try to be as standardized as possible to make sure that we speak the, the same language, but at the same time, you don't want to be too strict because otherwise you may lose something. So this is still tricky. <laughs> uh, you did determine through this study that uh, there appeared to be a cutoff change. Uh, how did you determine that, uh, that the cutoff needed to be uh, two versus four in your prior work? So here what we did is that we looked at the difference uh, between, so in the scores between a non-noxious uh, condition and noxious condition. And so we found a different threshold that was a threshold of two. Um, and so this is actually not really, if you, if you really see the scale, it's not that useful in terms of a subjective experience of, of pain. And so this is a little, bit, a little bit of an issue for us because um, what we wanted to have is something that can help the clinician to say, well, now there's an issue and I think we need to discuss potential treatment for, like an analgesic treatment for this patient. But the thing is that here we can, you can have a patient who just show a flexion withdrawal and then you would, that would trigger somehow like the question of uh, pain treatment, which, which to us is a little, 
I mean, of course, so it, it is, it suggests that there's some uh, nociception that, so that could be interesting in terms of like medical complication, um, you know, and, and potential uh, pain. But, but to us, it is a little limited. And I think that the, the methodology that we're using may be limited in that sense. And so now we're trying to, um, to, to determine a threshold, but that would be based on neuroimaging data. So basically trying to look for uh, pain, like, the, like uh, the, the network that's related to nociception and pain, and see whether uh, by better documenting these, the, the patients, we can get a better sense of what would be the best threshold um, for, for, for pain. Right. Which, which behavioral sign best correlates with neuroimaging evidence of, of higher level processing of potential pain experience? Basically, there's, a, I think right now, and, and it's been an issue for a lot, a lot of scales, actually. Um, I think we, we're still a little um, limited in, in how, how much we can uh, su suggest and recommend the, uh, the, the, the scale should be used. So in a sense that for us, like right now, we're using it in the way that we would compare the response of the patient during rest, during experimental pain, so the pressure on the nail bed, and then during cares. And if we see that the, 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 the response during uh, cares is similar or higher to what's observed um, in response to um, experimental pain, nociception, then we suggest that uh, there, there would need a, a discussion around um, potential treatment. So this is what we, what we suggest now before having a better, um, you know, better recommendation and better uh, uh, threshold that, that, that we are more confident with. Yes, it, uh, yeah, you get at the application of the scale there, and it is, uh, it, it's a difficult kind of clinical judgment that I suppose requires a lot of expertise, certainly involvement of the, the patient's family as well in terms of what, what they want done. Um, there, you know, folks who are in the field are certainly experiencing the fact that patients are very sensitive uh, to any, any tiny small dose uh, of pain medication can certainly affect the, the scoring of uh, the Coma Recovery Scale revised and so forth. And, um, and certainly, uh, so utilizing those medications does kind of sometimes conflict uh, with the best assessment or highest, you know, kind of potential rehab participation uh, of the patient. So it, it's tough in deciding, you know, whether we're going to treat, but if treatment equals over-treatment in terms of the context of any perceived uh, consciousness, you know, when do we kind of do uh, medication, drug treatment, you know, holidays, you know, for potential pain treatment in order to reassess the patient's consciousness level and so forth, and how long should those uh, go on uh, and everything. It's uh, it's certainly not black and white. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And this is really why we're working hard on, on trying to get the the, the, the more and the best tools to, to help uh, clinicians doing that, that job because it's really a tricky job and uh, um, th this balance is, is often hard to, to, to reach. So Now one practical uh, question here for you. You certainly demonstrate how clearly uh, the coma recovery scale and this scale are correlated uh, to the extent that and to, to some extent uh, testing folks for nociception is almost a proxy for their level of consciousness in general. No, not for everyone, but uh, if the patient is vegetative, they don't show very highly on this scale and so forth. Certainly, as a shorthand, if your patient is uh, MCS, uh, this does indicate that you should have more level of concern for any type of uh, uh, potential pain and, and treat accordingly. 
but you did have a few patients uh, in your study who were uh, clearly more VS on the coma recovery scale, who are rating a little bit more highly on, on the nociceptive scale. Um, given the, the similarity between the two, what's the advantage of, of, of utilizing uh, your scale uh, versus the coma recovery scale for the assessment of pain specifically? So I think uh, what one main um, thing I would say is that uh, the nociception coma scale is very, very uh, quick to administer any specific to uh, assess behavioral responsiveness to nociception and pain, whereas the coma recovery scale revised is not. You know, you have to, uh, to ask a patient, the patient to do a lot of things. It takes 30 to 40 minutes and even sometimes more. Um, so this is one. Uh, second, I mean, it includes some items such as facial expression that are, I think, really key for assessing uh, pain and nociceptions in nociception in this population. Um, and... Um, Mm-hmm. I don't know. Sorry. Yeah. And actually, actually, um, I've, so we are now working on a, on a, on a study with uh, all the patients that we have in Liège. And we actually found, uh, um, several patients who are considered as being unresponsive by the CRSR. Um, but who show pretty high, um, scores at the nociception comasky revised. And these patients seem to really have um, brain metabolism preservation that is not really common for uh, unresponsive patients. And you know that there's a high rate of misdiagnosis in these patients due to, um, you know, language impairment, motor impairment, vigilance fluctuation, and so on. And, and so this is, I think, um, we found these cases that where I think you can definitely see a, mis- a mismatch between the two scales. Uh, can you give a percentage uh, at this point of, uh, in general when you administer these scales to your, uh, uh, in, the, in the course of the studies you've done so far about what percentage of folks in VS are showing a bit higher on uh, the NCS? In general, to kind of give a gauge a level of clinical concern about this scenario, which is objectively concerning, patient appears to you to be in a vegetative state, even if you're doing the coma recovery scale revised, about in general when you're testing what percentage of the vegetative state patients uh, score at a concerning level on the nociceptive coma scale revised. So it's so here we really looked at the subset of patients. So we have a few cases, three, four, I think. Um, so I don't really have a, an idea of the the, journal, like the whole patients that we have included, that we have in, the, in Liège now. But I know that we know from uh, all the, the, the studies on covered consciousness that there's uh, potentially about a 20% of the patients with uh, severe brain injury who are misdiagnosed as being uh, unconscious by the CRSR, but who are actually, who show actually some brain activity suggesting um, conscious processing uh, with other um, techniques such as the EEG, for example, the PET scan, the fMRI, and so on. So this is more generally in, a, in the population. Right. So potentially up to one in five, which is which certainly uh, uh, warrants all the efforts that one can muster, in, yeah. certainly including additional scales. All right. Um, well, uh, it's very important work, and obviously, uh, as as published in the September issue of, of the archives, uh, new general practice guidelines have have been published for the field, um, and they they do include encouraging clinicians at, at so-called level B evidence as something that they should do, making an effort to assess in their DOC patient population levels of pain. Doesn't specify 
using this scale in particular, but this is certainly, uh, given the recent publications, uh, perhaps the most prominent scale for the DOC population. So I bet it will receive a lot more attention in, in part thanks to the uh, to the guidelines. So that must feel good. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. <laughs> I think it's really key and this is like a or battle to really increase the assessment of these patients in terms of pain and consciousness. So, Thank you, Dr. Chattel, for this highly clinically relevant work. And that's it for the September 2018 issue of the Rehab Cast. Join us again next month as we hear from the people behind the excellent research in the journal. And just a reminder that Dallas is right around the corner. The ACRM annual conference is September 30th through October 3rd. This podcast is brought to you by ACRM, the American Congress of Rehabilitation Medicine. Don't miss their annual conference coming to Dallas September 30th through October 2nd, the largest rehabilitation research event in the world, and it's interdisciplinary. Visit acrm.org.